And we are at episode 73. How much do you love sugar? If someone said donate sugar for 28 days, what is your gut reaction to that question? Could you do it? If your reaction is anything but, sure, no worries, then you are in for a sweet treat with today's episode as we are with a recovered drug addict that is certain that sugar is the gateway drug that facilitates virtually all addiction. So if you struggle to kick the sugar habit or sweet foods are your go-to when you're feeling any number of uncomfortable emotions, then today's episode is for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Good to have you on the podcast Airways for today's cracking interview with another guest from across the pond. As you know, it's my mission to coach 150 individuals to create the sustainable, healthy life that they truly want by the end of this year that being December 2020. Now, today's episode is going to resonate with a lot of people and maybe you. Why? Because you're a human and humans have a tendency to be driven by this deep-seated instinctive compulsion steered by the inner workings of their reptilian brain, a core system of function that we developed long before we were these intelligent socialized beings that we are today. The catch is that despite this intelligent social leap that we've taken, our inner workings are still driven by that reptilian brain that formed thousands of years before. You might be wondering, what is he talking about? Is this the beginning of a National Geographic episode? (laughs) What I'm talking about is the compulsive tendency to consume sugar to the point that addiction is not just common, but it is socially accepted to the point of judgment if you're not in on the action at every possible opportunity. And to really help us dig into this, I have a great guest from the USA with an interesting story that begins 30 years ago where he was struggling with his drug addiction and after seeing the effects it had on his family, decided to seek help. During his meetings on the road to recovery, he discovered that people would use sugar as a means to cope with the withdrawals and he saw how the sweet substance could be a gateway drug itself. Fast forward until today, he is now the founder of SugarAddiction.com and one of the biggest online health events called Quit Sugar Summit, which he has kindly invited me to be one of the speakers of this year, along with 49 other high-caliber amazing humans. The link to that is in the show notes below. More on that throughout the episode. This amazing man is also the board chairman of the Food Addiction Institute and has been completely sugar-free for over 30 years, whilst also working closely with others to help them regain lives ravaged by this addictive product. He also raised his two children sugar-free from birth to over six years old. And who is he? that I keep referring to. He is Mike Collins, and he is here to hang out with us today. Welcome to the show, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for thanks for having me, and uh, thanks for that great introduction. That's great. <laughs> Appreciate it. <laughs> Not a problem. I'm glad to have you. I think a lot of people are going to be able to relate to sugar addiction since it runs our world. Right. So, from illicit substance abuse to getting clean, so clean that you eliminated the most universally consumed substance in the world being sugar, can you tell us a bit about that journey? Sure, I'd love to. I mean, in hindsight, I think that part of the journey got left out or gets left out a lot of times, both in people recovering from substance use disorder and other things, is that um, I think this all starts in childhood, right? It may be in the womb. I mean, I actually believe it does start in the womb, right? And we start 
using sugar unconsciously, you know, it's legal to give to a one-year-old, right? And we begin it as an emotional management tool. Like instead of getting down on the level of a two-year-old and giving them a hug, we stick a cookie in their mouth and they learn that if they're upset, they should use this product, right? And so I did that. I was a regular kid, you know, I, I literally, we ate bread and butter and sugar sandwiches and Kool-Aid with three times the sugar in it. And, you know, we had unfettered access to the sugar bowl and my mother was a sugar junkie and we knew where her stash was, right? There's an awesome video on uh, YouTube, Eric Clapton, about this exact same story. You know, he's uh, being interviewed by 60 Minutes, Ed Bradley, and he says, Ed Bradley says, so Eric, this addiction stuff started with um, heroin, right? Ed, or, uh, Eric Clapton says, no, Ed, it started with sugar. He said, I would stuff bread and butter sandwiches and sugar sandwiches down my throat to change my state. Well, the same thing happened to me until, you know, I got to, and I didn't, no one knows. I don't think anyone, this is the part, we'll discuss it later, I hope. No one understands this part of it. So when I hit 13, 14, discovered beer and alcohol and uh, marijuana and everything else. That party lasted until I was about 28 years old. And I got sober. And what I found around the rooms of recovery and, and the people that I got in recovery with is that, you know, there's a freshman 15 in college where people gain 15 pounds, right? Well, in recovery, it was like the freshman 50, right? People would join, people would gain like 50 pounds and, and get that, you know, two years in be getting diagnosed with diabetes because literally they would substitute one drug for another. And so, you know, I just started, it just looked identical to me. And I started to know a few people in food recovery, which was very small back then, 35 plus years ago, 35 years ago. And, and I started to ask questions and study a little bit. There's very little literature. And it took me a while because no one, everyone thought it was very weird that uh, I was sober and clean. And they thought that, you know, don't worry about the damn sugar. And I, I didn't think that way. And, and, so eventually I did quit it all. And then I raised the kids, as you mentioned, sugar-free. And I had a regular life after that, Maddie. I, I like had, you know, I went, had a business and uh, a career and stuff. And it wasn't until about uh, nine or so years ago that I uh, bought sugaraddiction.com, the domain name, and started putting information out. And then last two or three years, we've been coaching and that kind of stuff. So that's the short, the podcast version. It many times brings up more questions than it answers. But if you know if that's something you want to talk about, I'd be glad to. But that's the short version. Thanks for sharing that. And um, interesting about that, Eric Clapton, like him having that awareness back then. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They were sitting in a seven million dollar Antigua treatment center that he built to help people, and he's very aware about this part of the journey, if you will. Um, he's much more advanced than people think of as the, you know, the iconic guitar player in this field. He's very knowledgeable. He's gone. He's made, he's, he made the trip himself, obviously. Yeah, I think. Hello, I'm a musician myself, and I think uh, the society's perception of musicians is uh, very one-dimensional. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I mean, he fit the drug addict part, right? <laughs> but you know. <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, there's plenty of you know, there's plenty of doctors and lawyers and uh, you know, socially acceptable people that slot into that category. Oh, absolutely. You're right about that. No doubt about it. So, we have this sort of socially acceptable framework that perpetuates this widespread addictive consumption of sugar. But but why are humans so addicted to sugar? Like, what's the core problem there? Like, why is this such a rabbit hole for people once they enter? 
Wow, great question. And I'm glad you set this up for me because a lot of folks don't uh, don't look at it this way. And obviously, with the background and this little story I just told you, I, I look at this from an addictive background. And I have in my research and in my lived, you know, my experience over the last 30 years. And and really now the science is just now coming out to uh, boy this up to uh, prove this out, right? And the reason is we're attracted to it because of the fructose, the fructose. It's a couple different pronunciations, but the fructose is the sweet part. And for for your audience, you know, sugar is half, table sugar is half fructose and half glucose. And everybody, you need glucose to live for the body, for all the energy in the cells and stuff. I don't believe you need powdered glucose. That's another story. But, you know, Stick with the, this this line of reasoning, if you will, is the fructose uh, is was in very little amounts of, of fruit, like those crab apples and, uh, you know, banana 300 years ago was such a big seed pod, you couldn't even really eat it. I mean, you were attracted to that and things like honey, but you got so little of it, you know, there's nothing in nature that has fructose in it that's poisonous. So we were very attracted to it for one reason, to spread the seeds of whatever fruit we were eating when it was like at 100% ripeness, right? So fast forward, here we are, we've hybridized fruit to the point where it's just a gigantic fructose bomb. And we've uh, processed sugar and beets and cane into a powder, not not dissimilar to the processing, uh, uh, the process of creating cocaine out of uh, coca leaves, and now we have it in a powdered form. And then the big whammy of it all is high fructose corn syrup. So it was a slow evolutionary build, mostly in the last 300 years as the Caribbean started growing and um, you know basically built the uh, empire that was England at the time. And, you know, just back then, I mean, only uh, kings and queens could have this little bit of a spice that was sweet. And now, you know, the general person, you know, the average man could have it. So it came into our society in an evolutionary way. But in reality, it started, as Dr. Lustig says, the eminent sugar researcher, the offending molecule is the fructose, right? The fructose is what is the reason we cannot stop because it hits the reward systems in the brain, the dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. I mean, and now the science is there to prove it. So the answer to your question is the, it's the fructose, you know, the fructose. So there's a couple of different pronunciations, but <laughs> and, and I guess that yeah, that fructose plays into the the evolutionary mechanisms in our brain of reward and that that's what essentially keeps us alive, right? Those reward systems in the brain. Because right. otherwise we'd never eat anything if we didn't get some kind of reward. Right. That's what they evolve for, to chase different foods uh, and for, and sex. So, I mean, it's, uh, you know, those, it is a, a reward system that has been hijacked, literally hijacked by this white processed powder. powder. And, and it's a dose dependent, Maddie. It's like um, you take a little bit of cocaine, take a little bit of heroin, a little bit of alcohol, whatever. But we push 17 teaspoons a day average through our body, 150 pounds a year. So, you know, it's the dose that makes the poison. It's the dose that's getting us. Um, so, yeah, it's the, and, and I think the, the being reduced to a white crystalline powder too. Um, there's a debate as to, you know, the amount of fructose in fruit that's good for you, but we can go there if you want. But it's, 
And forget about the idea that the powdered crystalline is good for you. That's just not. And high fructose corn syrup. Oh, anything devoid of, of its relevant nu- nutritional uh, compounds as well as the fiber is going to, you know, it's purposely designed for rapid uptake. So, yeah, yeah. I think anything in that environment or, or, or in that state, you, you can't really debate against that being, you know, it's, it's bad for the body, right? <laughs> 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I can't, there's no, hopefully amongst your listeners, there's no argument about that, you know. If they're listening to this podcast and they want to not get sick and die, then I'm pretty sure they're on board with us. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm really curious, because of its social acceptance to be, you know, a massive sugar consumer, and I guess the, even the social acceptance to just be obese now, what actually hmm. makes this a gateway drug? Is it just the fact that it is, is it like a drug actually, but it's just legal? Is that the only difference? or But what makes it the, the gateway to the others? Oh, that's such a, a great question for me. I mean, this is really at the core of my work. It's at the core of healing. It's at the core of change, personal change. Um, and it's a little counterintuitive or hard to grasp at the beginning, but I think you'll understand with the Eric Clapton story and the um, the growing up from the womb forward. It really is the emotional and brain reward center activity that is the key to all this. Now, we all know that blood sugar is a problem with the body, okay? We know that massive amounts of sugar, glucose, even, you know, insulin uh, stimulating stuff is going to hurt your, you know, you're going to give you diabetes and a whole bunch, a whole host, and probably a hundred other things. But the reason people can't get off it, I mean, it's kind of crazy when you just say, look, don't eat steak for a month. Okay, no problem. I don't like, I like steak, but I won't do it. Okay, don't eat broccoli for a month. Okay, no problem. But when you tell them don't eat sugar for a month, first of all, they get all panicked. But second of all, they can't do it literally without help, understanding, information, a group, tribe, a a quality support system. Most people find it difficult. And the reason they find it difficult is because since they were a one-year-old, since their mother did it to them, possibly in the womb, they've been using sugar as a reward system when they had stress, when they had fear, when they had anxiety, when they had hurt, when they had pain, they would reach for this sugary substance or get it given to them by a parent. And then they realized that they could do it. They could self-medicate themselves. And in an unconscious way, what happened is they developed a reward system that is dependent and hinges upon the use of sugar. Instead of taking a walk, going to yoga, getting a hug, calling a friend, uh, taking a hot bath, getting a mani-pedi, people would just reach for the sugar unconsciously, something that takes no effort. And they would soothe themselves just, excuse me, just for a few minutes. And the reason that they can't stop is because the dopamine receptors have literally been down, what's called down-regulated, okay? They've thinned out. There's less of them. In the nucleus accumbens, you know, all of the brain reward systems are literally hijacked and deep, deep neural grooves have been pa- paved in our brain that says, feel the stress, eat sugar. Uh, feel scared, eat sugar. Feel worried, feel anxiety, eat sugar. And it only lasts a little bit and you have to re-ingest to keep doing it. So when you stop 
all of a sudden your brain goes on overload. It doesn't have the dopamine systems or the dopamine hit that you got from manipulating it manually. And what happens is you got to go back to it. You don't have time because you're going into withdrawals, right? And that's why no one can quit. And that's why no one does quit. And that's why it seems so hard. It's all that brain chemical reward system that has been hijacked since you were very young that, you know, handling stress and handling these other things. So I hope that was clear. And I'd like to answer any questions that it wasn't, but it's, it's at the core of the work that we do and the core, I believe, of the solution to this problem. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. I'm really interested in... Thanks for sharing that. That was, that was a great response. I'm really interested in um, talking a little bit maybe about the emotional stuff that you mentioned because I think as there's two sides to it, right? Is that we're literally biologically wired f- to crave you know, foods that fuel us and that feel good and give us energy and hit that reward center. So there's definitely a biological component. Um, and But the emotional side of it, I would love to talk about and understand because I guess the, I think it's relatively well understood that people you know, take narcotics and illicit substances because they're uncomfortable with the emotions that they feel or that they're seeking an escape from reality. So I guess is... Sugar consumption the same? Are people trying to, you know, extract themselves from their current reality or current state? And the reason it's a gateway drug is because that the illicit substances actually make that extraction method far more effective. Great question. Yes, uh, yes, yes, and yes. Okay. I mean, there's a comedian, and uh, you guys may have heard him over the states called Rodney Dangerfield. He just passed a little while ago, and he had a he had a routine. He said, uh, "I get no respect." You know, that was this, his tagline, right? He, after a while in the routine, he didn't even have to say the joke. He'd just say, I get no respect and people laugh. Well, sugar gets no respect as a psychoactive drug of, of, of pleasure, of emotional relief. There's, ver- there's a very common construct in recovery from alcohol and drugs, as you had mentioned, that if whenever you started using alcohol and drugs in a serious way, say you're 14, 15, 16, 17 years old, that's when you stop maturing emotionally. Okay. So that's very common, very well known, right? The problem is, is no one gives the respect to sugar as a localized emotional analgesic 
to handle stress, worry, pain, hurt. And so literally think about that you possibly could have stopped maturing emotionally as a baby, that you're just now having to develop new systems to manage everyday stress. And more than manage everyday stress, one of the reasons, and this is a really important thing, uh, is that a lot of times, like say you had a traumatic experience or whatever, even just your boyfriend breaking up when you were 15 years old, and then all of a sudden, all your girlfriends and you are having an ice cream party, right? Well, you learned that that's how you handle these emotional breakups. This is how you handle these emotional issues. And sometimes what happens, not only are you confronted with today's stressing events and whatever, everybody has stress in their life, but you are now starting to remember and um, start to pass through your body old stuff that you had tamped down with this product, right? And there's a very famous book out there called The Body Keeps the Score, right? It's a long Dutch name. I can't remember the author's name, but 30 years of therapy. Yeah, I love that book. You understand? Yeah, right. So you understand, you, you, you've heard of it. So what happens is people, when they use drugs and alcohol, and I believe 110% sugar and flour, that when they use these products, they use that they are tamping down emotions that they just couldn't deal with at the time. And they put it off and put it off. But the body will remember and eventually you have to process this out. And so this happens to you when you quit sugar the little hurts and slights and pains and, and worries and fears start to come out, almost seeming like they're from nowhere, right? Um, are you still there? Yep. Yeah, sorry. My computer died for a second. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, they seemingly come from nowhere and you're, they don't seem to be related to today's life. You're a little weepy, you're a little you know, fearful, you're irritable and angry and you don't know why. Uh, when you start withdrawals and we go abstinent sugar. And so this is such an important lesson or part of the learning and healing process that people don't want to deal with it. When people come to me, what they want is a food plan and an exercise plan. <laughs> I'm like, look, I'll give you that. They're going to get that. But that's only one little part of the equation and a very small part of the equation. So. In that equation, like, so is it possible to not be addicted? Because what I find, and I, I, I guess in many contexts, I run a similar business in that people come to me for a meal plan and, you know, some guidance on what to eat, what not to eat. And right. the first two weeks, if not four weeks um, for my one-on-one clients and for my group is the first two weeks is on mindset and setting up like a supportive environment and behaviors that support not sort of falling into these, uh, you know, rabbit holes of what I call mood food rather than bad food. Um, But is it possible to not be addicted? Because one of the things that's sort of perpetuated in diet culture is that it's just up to willpower. It's just up to using the prefrontal cortex area of the brain to just not do it. But when we're literally biologically wired to crave this reward system and routine that we go through, like what what are the steps or what what is uh, a possible in, in in, in regards to not being addicted? Or is it just a willpower battle for life? No, no, it's it's a, a... A very, I don't know if like you know, how the numbers stack up, like exactly, but there are there are some base numbers, and this is through the Food Addiction Institute, where all my, you know, board members are MDs and PhDs and people that own treatment centers, and they've been, you know, working this and the twelve step food stuff for thirty years. They, you know, they've come to a generalized belief that one third of people 
biochemically cannot handle this product in their body without setting up massive cravings. And they get the positives at the early, in the early days. They feel real good about it. But then, it, like any drug, will turn on you. And those folks biochemically when they quit, they have to go 100% abstinence because any amount of ingestation just sets up massive craving and starts the cycle all over again. And then there's one third of folks who are almost like a binge drinker in college. You know, they could age out of it. They could, uh, you know, they could walk away with some information and some support. They could walk away from it. Maybe they've gained 20 or 30 pounds. They realize it. And then maybe they could have a little bit on their birthday every year, or maybe they could have a little bit once a week or whatever. Um, those folks are um, in the middle third, if you will. And then the last third, we all hate those. <laughs> no, just kidding. Though we, the, those people can just take it or leave it. Their, their body's not as, as susceptible to it as, a, as, as regular, as addicts like I would be, or someone, you know, we usually work with the late stage folks or the middle stage folks or both, you know? Um, but the, the last group, they can just take it or leave it. Right. So yeah, the answer to your question is it, everybody's a little bit different in, if you fall in the first third, it's crazy because the and you don't have to be obese to be a sugar addict. You can be in a very thin sugar addict, but the obesity numbers seem to chronicle, seem to model those figures in that two thirds of the population is overweight and a third of the population is obese. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's it, the research is real. I mean, it's there biochemically. About a third of folks can't handle the stuff. So. In this world that we're in, and like particularly for us in Australia and you in America, like society couldn't be more set up for everybody to be a sugar addict. So, what, what's like your suggestion for like the top two, top two things that people could do listening? That because you know, there's no doubt that the vast majority of us, in some way, are a sugar or a carb addict, just biologically. Mm-hmm. So, what would you suggest listeners do in order to start taking steps in the right direction to help manage this in this, you know, um, commercially corporatized structured world that's all about making that sugar dollar? Well, it's a big one. Um, you know, this is a 20 or 30 year tectonic shift where happen- what's going to happen, right? And like, uh, Drinking and driving, seatbelts in cars, smoking in public places, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's an education and awareness process that um, is stigmatized at some level. Obesity is stigmatized. I mean, things are it's it's going to take a while. But the main thing I always answered this question with is people have got to think for themselves now. What I find in my practice and maybe in yours um, is that the people that succeed are pioneers at some level in their in their athletics, in their family, in their business, in their career, in their uh, uh, whatever. They've, they've done something outside of the norm of their tribe, their family, their, their, their family of origin. And they're not afraid to do something different. They're not afraid to step out, do the research themselves, and get the right answers and then use their own body as a guinea pig. I use my own children as a guinea pig, right? It's like you need to be able to use your own body as a guinea pig. And if you attempt what we call, you know, the I call it the gift of 90 days. If you can give yourself 90 straight days of abstinence from sugar and flour, I call it powder addiction, anything white, processed, anything, literally, down to vitamins and stuff like that and just eat whole foods 
no one that I ever known of has ever come back on back to using it. They fall to a right size body. Their skin looks better. They get off some meds, uh, diabetes meds, and sometimes psychotropics, SSRIs. If you can give yourself that gift, and hell, if I like I said, if I told you not to eat steak for 90 days, you'd do it. If I told you not to eat broccoli, you'd do it. But this is a simple test, a simple experiment. That's the only thing I would ask folks to do is just do the experiment and write, you know, try and journal it out, right? Try and figure it out. And most people, about the fourth or sixth day, seventh day, start to realize that this is hard to do without help. It's, uh, you know, there's an inordinate amount of support required to get this done, this little experiment done. Um, so I, I don't hope that helps or it answered the question. I hope it didn't sound evasive, but I, I don't, there's no fix all. There's no one universal thing, but to do it to understand it and do the research and use your own body as a guinea, guinea pig to do it. You've got to dive in and do the work. And I think if there's one one thing that um, seems to be universal, like obviously a lot of you know nutrition, diet experts, uh, health experts, everybody has their perception on what's important, whether it's fasting, whether it's this diet, that diet, keto, high carb, low carb. But the one universal thing that everybody comes back to and that joins us all together in this space as health professionals seems to be whole real foods. Absolutely. I mean... It, we've we've come to a world, a very convenient world, where the food manufacturers and I don't like to ascribe enemies, but they literally have food scientists that are trying to figure out how to have you, you know, the bliss point. I don't know if you read that book, but yeah, you know, trying to figure out how to make the products so that we ingest more of them. And we've gotten away, before convenience sake, from whole, real, natural food and beverage, right? They, we just don't drink water much anymore, a lot of folks. And they don't eat from the outside of the grocery store, which is, you know, food that's not in a bag, a box, a can, or whatever, you know. So when they do, when they can do that, and it does take time. There's a commitment to it, sure. But it is worth it for your health, I think. it's If that's a legacy you're interested in, obviously your listeners are then maybe they should just give that a whirl. Just try whole food for 90 days and no powders. Yeah, absolutely. And I'd love to get you on again in the future to talk about maybe the the, the dietary component of it. But in the meantime, where can listeners find you online? Sugaraddiction.com. Um, you can go there. We've got a book to download. It's a 100-page book that's on Amazon for $9.97. You can get the digital version at sugaraddiction.com forward slash book. Um, yeah, I mean that's the best place to go. Um, I tell there's a quiz there. I tell people you don't if you if you listen to this and you go to sugaraddiction.com, you probably don't need to take the quiz, but you can take it anyway. <laughs> uh, just grab the book and and check out what we do, and uh, it's free to download on the site. Awesome, thanks. And for the listeners, um, if you got anything out of this episode, or you enjoyed it, or you want to share it with a friend because you think they'd benefit, then please do take a screenshot. You can share it as your Instagram story or on whichever social media platform that you prefer to hang out. And be sure to tag myself, and I'll put all of Mike's links down below in the show notes. And just to wrap up, I'd just love to know, Mike, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people knew about? Oh, I wish they knew more about the emotional stuff that we talked about and that the, the, the correlation, the, the, the relationship to um, dieting and quitting the white stuff, which all you know diet books talk about, 
uh, I wish they knew more about that emotional connection and in the brain chemical brain reward system connection. I love that. I totally agree. And I talk a little bit about that on the show myself. And I know that looking into your work, they'll uh, definitely be able to learn a lot about that. Yeah, for sure. I hope so. That'd be great. Awesome. Thanks so much for being on the show, Mike. I've loved hanging out. I'm looking forward to getting you back on too. There's so much we could talk about. I'd love it. I'd love it. That'd be great. That'd be awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Keep keep up the good work down there. Yeah, likewise. All right, mate. We'll catch you on the next episode. See you soon. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use, and we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.